my first time. And uh, it's beautiful. It is beautiful here. And I must say, it's 50 degrees in Denver today. <laughs> so I'm really happy because I love summer. Summer is my month. <laughs> and we're entering into fall, and I love fall too. But winter is really hard on this California girl's soul in Denver. Um, but mostly, I'm really honored to be here to be in this particular conversation. Because there's nothing that's more near and dear to my heart in my own story and my hope for the church. And that is that issues related to addiction and healing and recovery would be embedded in the roots and the deepest places of the life of the church and in the body of Christ. And unfortunately, my experience has been that on the whole, it's separated out. It's divided. It's not integrated into one. And so being in a room of pastors and pastors-to-be and ministry leaders in some shape or form, knowing that the heart of Asbury and the heart of us all here together to learn is to do the work of integrating it. Because it shouldn't be separated. Healing is what Jesus did everything about. Everything was about healing and restoration and resurrection. And that shouldn't be something that's divided. So it is an honor to be here. And I want to start, um, I'm going to kind of share this thought and then we're going to hold it and come back to it. But it's really important because no matter what conversation I'm in about church, I always like to remind us of this. Some of you might have heard it before, some of you may not have. I first um, intersected with these three prepositions of life as a Christian. Oh gosh, it was a long chunk of years ago, maybe 10 or 11 years ago and by the Center for Transforming Mission, is this idea that the way that we're living out our life as Christians um, have been in these two prepositions. And that the first one is to. So we have something to give to somebody. It's very paternal, and it creates oppression. I would call that probably an old model of mission. It's still in play today. Um, but it's really been replaced a lot with the second preposition, and that's the preposition for. And so for is doing things for people. And so that's kind of my specialty. I'm really good at that. I'm a mom of five. I've been in ministry now for 23 years. It's just a default position, in that, and it's easier. And both two and four kind of have somebody over another even with a good heart. My foreheart is not a bad heart. It's a good heart. But it's very maternal, and it creates codependence, which is an unhealthy entanglement with a person that is not free and not healthy. So the preposition that often we nod our head to but don't actually want to live out in practice is the preposition with. And this right here is the kingdom of God. This is not the kingdom of God. Because in this, power is not equal. There's one person with power, or one group with power, and there's another person or group with less than that. So there's somebody not quite good enough, not quite healed enough, not quite Christian enough. And there's somebody that somehow has the answer. So what does this create? Separation and division. The preposition with is incarnational. It is the way of Jesus. And it's transformational. 
and I'm just gonna say it, we all hate it. <laughs> we like to talk about it like it's a great principle, but in real life, this is so hard because it's so vulnerable. This keeps us safe, keeps us protected, keeps us somehow guarded. And the preposition with the incarnational ways of Jesus that actually creates true transformation in our own lives and in the lives of others demands a vulnerability. It demands a giving and a receiving. It demands an equality where we're all equal at the table as sinners and as saints all at the same time. And so um, I'm going to pause that thought and come back to um, just a little bit about my story so you know where I'm coming from. And um, this is uh, really, I'm not, I'm not Methodist. This has been really fun for me to be around so many Methodists. I have a lot of friends um, who pastor Methodist churches. Um, but my experience was that I came from um, a non-Christian family. I was raised in Northern California. My mom married three alcoholics. My dad was number two. And when you live in an alcoholic family, no matter what that looks like, just weird stuff happens. And kids find a way to cope. So we all have a way of coping, my way of coping. It was not a Christian family, so there would maybe talk about spirituality, but nothing specifically and overtly about Jesus. Um, so my way of coping was good girl, peacekeeper, do everything to be shiny on the outside, make sure nobody was ever upset, angry, anything that kept the peace. And so I had all this stuff stuffed way down inside of me, that I coped by performing, getting great grades, Kathy Angel, Kathy Good Girl, Kathy Do Everything, that kept the peace. I was desperate for Jesus. And I actually did not have Christian friends. I didn't have people who went to church. And this is one of the reasons why I still believe all these years later, is that somebody somewhere along the line gave me a little white Bible and told me to read the book of John. And I love to read. That's how I um, found a lot of escape and healing in my crazy family. And so I read the book of John, and I was just like a moth to a flame, just strangely and beautifully drawn to Jesus. And it was like he knew my pain. He knew the things that I couldn't say out loud. And that purity, that wasn't through church. It wasn't through somebody evangelizing to me. It wasn't through any of those things I always hold on to. Because out of that, over the years, I did, I did end up in church. And I did end up going. And I ended up coming to the altar every time to ask for forgiveness again. Because in that length of time, I had an abortion and hid it. I never told anybody about it. And I never told anybody about any of my pain. Literally, I was crowned homecoming queen in my high school three months later. The split that that kind of added, it wasn't that. I, it was my family before then, but it was like the icing on the cake. And it did draw me to Jesus because I was desperate to have that part healed. But the truth is, is that I went over and over and over again, and I never felt forgiven. And I never felt safe enough to say it in the circle that I was in. So my way of coping is a way that a lot of us cope. We just work harder, try harder. 
And I was like, I better make something of this mess that I've made. And so I went to Pepperdine University. I got my degree in three years. My mom was a single mom. I was a poor girl at a rich school. Um, but I'm really grateful because there was a sense there that I, um, I started going to church. I started learning more. I started dedicating myself to Jesus. I desperately needed him. But here's the truth. I didn't tell my story. I just kept performing. I got married several years later. I got my master's degree um, right out of Pepperdine, and then I met my husband, and I didn't tell him the truth either. We went to church every Sunday to Sunday school, marched our children in in cute baby gap clothes, and nobody knew what was going on inside of me. And what I found of becoming a Christian from a non-Christian family, that actually all my good girl skills were even amplified <laughs> more in the church and revered. And revered. Inside I was dying, you guys. I had two kids. I was lonely. I was disconnected. I was filled with shame. It was coming out in my parenting. I had friends, but I didn't feel known. And I kind of could stay in this like, I had something over them in some ways, and then nothing underneath. There was no equality and no vulnerability in my relationships. So I'm so grateful I went to a Baptist church. Um, it was very conservative in so many ways, but I had a friend who went to a seminary, similar to Asbury Seminary, and her um, experience started to open up. She invited me into a group, and I went and began to listen to people actually being honest about struggles. Everyone looked good on the outside. We all had a lot of education. We had a lot of uh, resource. And inside, shame in every category you can imagine. And I, w I remember listening to them share, and I was like, I'm not sharing that. I'm not sharing that. And I could talk about my alcoholic family. I could talk about depression. I could talk about some struggles, but I didn't. I couldn't tell the truth of my story. But you guys all know this. The spirit breaks through, and there's nothing you can do. It just has to come out. <laughs> and other than marrying my husband, first beginning to follow Jesus, next marrying my husband, that was the next biggest change and healing and complete 180 in my life. Because I began to be become a truth teller, and I hated it. I hate vulnerability. <laughs> And now I love it on another, in another level because um, it opens up the full range of life. And so that was the beginning of my story. That was 23 years ago. It was a long time. Um, and it didn't come in a rush. It wasn't this one thing because it wasn't just about my abortion. It was about a whole bunch of other things underneath it and my unhealthy coping skills that I learned the day I entered in this world, to be honest. And that they were not serving me well. And um, so one of the things that uh, changed everything was being with other people who were honest too. I needed them. And I was taught not to need anybody. And to be frank, I was taught that a lot in my Christian experience. You only need God. Me and God, me and God, me and God. And yes, of course. Of course we need God, but we need each other too. I needed them. I would never be where I am today without them being honest. 
So um, let's come back to the scripture. I love it. We only picked a little portion of it, but I just want to come back to the story briefly. Um, the story of Lazarus and John, you know, this reality that he died. They're like, why did you not get here? What were you doing? We needed you. And then he comes. I'm going to pick up and go to the very last, the very last sentence in verse 40. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. To me, this is the most important part. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Take off his grave clothes and let him go. Loose him. There's all different versions of the same action. And that is that Jesus raised him from the dead and called him out. But those grave clothes did not automatically fall off of him. He looked at his community and said, help. Unbind him. Unbind him. And so I think out of everything to me, the piece that we need is to unbind each other. You need unbinding. I need unbinding. I don't get to just work on yours. That's this. I need you to help me, and I need to tell my story that helps you. We need each other. And um, so what, you know, a significant thing about this passage is that God does the raising. God does the raising. There's no question. There's no question. God does the raising. God's the one that prompts people to go to a meeting, to tell the truth, to move forward on something. God does it. But then we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to be present and to help do the work. They don't, the grave clothes do not automatically fall off. They don't. They never do. I'm 23 years in, and my friends are still helping me unwrap. So we're all wounded, we're dying, and we're stuck with a lot of messages about ourselves. And they look different for every person, whether you came from a two-parent family that was really super-de-duper healthy, or whether you grew up in a family with so much brokenness and so much in the dark and so much hidden and so many shameful things. That whole range, we're all in the same boat. It just looks different. It just looks different. And here's the thing, is that we will always want to help other people get unbound, and we will never want somebody to help us. We'll always try and figure it out. And so, you know, what are some of the wounds in our grave, grave clothes as we're talking about addiction and compulsive behaviors in this particular week of Holiness Week? At Asbury, very often, this has been my experience in recovery ministry all of these years, and the refuge, the faith community that I co-pastor and help plant, we get this all the time. Well, I'm not like those people. 
I'm not like those people. I'm not as bad as those people. I don't struggle with drugs. I don't struggle with alcohol. I had a good family. I'm not like those people. This right here is going to be the death of the church. Those people will not work. It's because those people are all of us. And our problem is, is we've forgotten that. We've been worrying about everyone else's cups and not cleaning the inside of ours. And so um, what are they? They're all kinds of things. They sometimes are drugs, alcohol. As an adult child of an alcoholic, I stopped drinking 23 years ago. I didn't go to meetings in that particular moment for that. I looked out at my baby girl. I had two kids. You know, trust me, I was at church the next morning. But the night before, stumbling home with my husband, he was in the Navy, and the Navy culture is a drinking culture. And I saw her in her crib, and I was like, I can't do this. I cannot, I got it running through my veins, and I can't do this. So I was able to stop drinking without going to meetings, but it takes, I still, 23 years later, I put my butt in the chair every single freaking week to keep working my healing. They're not all 12-step meetings, some of them are, but they're in some kind of venue with people I can be honest with and that are sharing their stories to help unwrap my grave clothes. So some things that might be our compulsive behaviors, maybe it's perfectionism, maybe it's people-pleasing, maybe it's codependency. I mean, I I ask people to study that all the time. I think it's a really um, uh, misnamed term A lot of us think, I can't tell you how many people, I'll work with a lot of people in transitional housing facilities, they're homeless, they're like, I'm not codependent. And I'm like, they're addicts, married to addicts, (laughs) making all kinds of really poor choices. Like, we just have a denial about it. And codependency is just, to me, unhealthy relationship skills. When it's all said and done, it's looking for love in all the wrong places and avoiding pain at all costs. That's what codependency is to me. Excessive control. Any controllers in the room? Pastors are so good at controlling. And um, excessive control, what do we do? We like to manage pain, we like to manage people, we like to manage whatever we can to not have to be vulnerable and raw and messy and human and uncomfortable. Low self-worth and self-hatred, that's a compulsive behavior. Because living in that perpetual thing, and I know it well, I did it for a long time. And it sometimes is rewarded in the church. And that's a sin, in my opinion. Um, Pain avoidance, workaholism, embedded messages, I'm not enough, not spiritual enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. Some of us are addicted to that. The list can go on and on. I have some of my grave clothes. I had time to think about this. I have all kinds of things on here. I have the pain of my abortion. I have codependency and problems with relationships. I have unworthiness, shame, perfectionism, self-hatred, hidden rage, um, unhealthy peacekeeping skills, fear. Those are all things I can say 23 years later that are not as evident, some of these are not as strong, they don't have a hold on me, they're not guiding every bit of my life. But some of these I'm still sorting out. 
And I need my friends, my brothers and sisters, to help me unbind these wounds so they can be healed. So here's what we tend to do with our wounds. This is our natural tendency, these kinds of things. We hide and pretend. We try to heal ourselves, grind down, figure it out. Maybe, if you're lucky, go to a counselor and talk to one person. Sort it out in our head. Manage it. And then the third one, this is to us, pastors and leaders, we rely on two and four and making ourselves really needed to avoid what's going on inside of our hearts. That's what usually we do with our wounds. So what's the way out? It's with, it's this. It's incarnational community with one another. It's being honest about our wounds. It's unbinding each other. The refuge community is dedicated to this level of honesty. When people walk in, they're a little stunned. Um, but I will tell you, I can't hide there. I can't pretend and I can't do this with them. They will not tolerate it because we are fellow strugglers doing the best we can with what we have, seeking after God and understanding that healing is a long process. So my hope for, um, when you're 50, you have to carry these everywhere. <laughs> um, my hope for us as, as we wrap up is that we will find a way, each of us in our own way, to first and foremost listen to the stirring that God is calling us out of. God's the one that calls. But we have a responsibility to say it out loud. We have a responsibility to say it out loud. This is the fourth and fifth step, the twelfth step. There's lots of ways to apply that. But I will tell you, I wanted to get it by myself. And I needed my community to do that with me. So I want to give you just a moment to kind of sit, notice your feet on the floor, notice in the room, and, and consider what part in your story, things that you're struggling with now, things that are hidden in the past, it looks different for everybody. But I guarantee you there's something going on that probably we haven't said out loud out of fear. I wrote a whole bunch of them on my piece, my um, grave clothes, my linen. But I want you to think of maybe something that you know it's time, that you will not be able to be free. You will not be able, you will stay in this position in ministry, and you will stay separated from the life, the new life that God wants to bring to you and through you. And during um, communion, Jessica is going to come up and kind of guide us through that process. There's two tables, and I brought some grave clothes for us. Not everybody likes to do this. It's okay. I would ask you to take one as a symbol because there's something. And if anything, it's just to, to ask God to show you. But if you know that there's just one thing, it's a struggle, just write it down with some pens. Take it with you. Keep it. And then ask God to show you who and how and where. I don't know what that process will look like for each of us, but I know that that's where new life comes. And the question I would love for you to ask is, how can I be more honest about this in some form of community?
that saves. And I know Asbury's heart and, and um, hope is that this would be a place where you could practice. So I want to close with this. This is by Henry Nowen. Anything you read by him is, is excellent, but Wounded Healer and the Inner Voice of Love are two that I would highly recommend, especially Wounded Healer for pastors. Um, but I um, took the liberty to add a little clause. This is about compassion, and I'm putting in parentheses, and leadership the world needs. Okay? So he says this, compassion and leadership the world needs as us, asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. It challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. It requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion and leadership the world needs means full immersion in the condition of being human. So God, help us embrace our humanness and need for you. Help us humbly and bravely walk with each other, unbind each other, and find our way to healing and resurrection.